So we have uh, tonight, including tonight, we have four more GCFs left. So after this, we only have three more um, large group meetings left. And because I'm really bad at planning sermon series out ahead of time, we are flying through huge chunks of Mark in order to finish this book um, before the end of the semester comes. And so here's what we're going to see in the next three weeks, okay? Next week, we're going to see the human response to the gospel. The week after that, we're going to see divine judgment and the gospel. Catchy title, I know. Um, And then the week after that, we're actually going to see the glory of the gospel as we see the consummation of the book of Mark in the actual gospel narrative of Christ and his cross. Now, here's what I want you to do. I'm outlining that. We're going to see our response to the gospel, divine judgment and the gospel, and the glory of the gospel because if we have spent uh, a year in the book of Mark, And by the end, when we get to the cross of Christ, and we're not compelled to invite people to that story, we've been ineffective in our study of this book, okay? Because two of Mark's biggest themes are the lordship of Christ, and we're going to see that tonight, and also the cost and the labor of discipleship. And so here's what I want you guys to do. I want you, you should invite people every week to this because we like to share the gospel. Um, but, But I want you guys to be really intentional in inviting people to the next two, but specifically to the final GCF of the year, May, uh, May 7th. Do your best to be here. Do your best to invite people because I promise when we encounter the story of the cross in the rawness that Mark puts it, that, that the gospel will do work. And that's what we want here. We don't want people to come to this simply to have a large group. We want people to come to this because we believe in the power of the gospel to save those who, far, who are far off, and to motivate and stir those who have been drawn near. Okay, So that's the next three weeks. But tonight, we're going to consider two questions. Okay, First is, how do you think about your life? Right now, some of you are seniors in, in, in college, and you're looking at what happens next. Some of you are getting to the end of your freshman or sophomore years here, and you're trying to decide, where is it I'm going to concentrate my studies? Some of you are just thinking broadly in terms of life. Some of you are considering things about relationships and finances and moving and all of that. And so when you look at the broad scheme of your life, how is it you think about it in general terms? But secondly, how do you think about your death? And in terms of those, how does how you think about your death motivate you in your life And how does the motivation in your life shape how you think about your death? And those are kind of the two things we're going to look at tonight. And we're in the portion of the book of Mark where it's coming to a climax. We saw last week the kingdom was in breaking into Jerusalem. And with Jesus, so came the kingdom. And he was like teasing them. And he was coming in and there was an expectation of something. And then he withdrew and they came back and there was an expectation of something. And so from this point on, Jesus is dead set on the cross. The entire, every word of Mark is pointed and specific to draw Jesus to that cross and to make it glorious. And so what is happening tonight is Jesus is now in Jerusalem, and there's actually only one scene we see in the remainder of this book where Jesus is outside of Jerusalem. For the rest of this, he's in Jerusalem. He's in the place he's going to die, and those people who are upset with Jesus are trying to trap him in this text. 
And what they're going to do is we're going to see three sets of questions by three sets of religious officials given to Jesus with the intention of trapping him, of getting him to say something with which they could go to the Roman authorities or go to the court officials and be like, this guy's a nuisance, this guy's wrong, we need to get rid of him. They're hoping for that. And what we're going to see tonight is actually we're going to see four questions and four answers. And all four of those answers shape our lives in the present, but they do so by providing a hope for the future. And so tonight, what we're specifically going to see is this. We're going to see that Christ is the key to understanding life this side of death. Um, And he's also the key for understanding the hope on the other side of death. Christ is the key to understanding life here, but he's also the key to understanding life on the other side of death. And we're going to do this by looking at three things in Mark 12, verses 13 through 37. We're going to see one, we're going to see the sovereignty of God. Two, we're going to see resurrection glory. And three, we're going to see the key to the kingdom. And so that's kind of our our roadmap for tonight. Um, So I just want to pray for us as we dive into this. So Lord, we thank you. As Andrea just prayed, Lord, the University of Montana needs you, but it's not just the University of Montana that needs you. It's the world that needs you. And so we ask, Lord, that as we look at your word tonight and as we see the tension between the reality we live in currently and the hope that will be ours in the future, that it doesn't just stir us to think rightly, but it pushes us to act rightly, to speak rightly, to pray rightly, to preach the gospel rightly, to fight sin rightly both here in Missoula and to the edge of the universe, Lord, as the gospel goes forth, so that one day, as you prophesied, Lord, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Our prayer tonight is in the heart of those individuals who are here. You begin to push us towards that great commission call. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So, first question, right? We're going to see uh, four questions tonight, and we're going to look at them in three components. The first question has to do with government, taxes, and authority, right? There are some business majors in here, and you guys are probably cramming for your, your, your finals on taxes and stuff, and so this is for you, okay? This is the answer to all of your finance exams and all of your tax exams, okay? Don't take me up on that. But, but, but they're going to do this, and they're going to do this for a specific reason here. And so let's read the text together um, in Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful? to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, whose inscription and whose likeness is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. So the first question, so the cool thing about Jesus is when he's offered a question, he doesn't just answer the question, he teaches on the answer to that question. So the first point Jesus is teaching on is the sovereignty of God. 
Now, sovereign is a, is a big word that means a lot. And, and it means a lot, and it's important, so much so that we included it in the name of the church we're part of, Sovereign Hope Church. And it means this much on a normal level. It means this much on a biblical level. But of the biblical uses of the word sovereign, there are two kind of key components of this word that apply to this text. There are kind of three key uses of it in Scripture, but the two that are in play right now, and this is what sovereign means biblically, it is A, one who is in a high position of power, and B, one who has the ability to be effective, to rule ultimately and to be effective in that rule. You see, we as humans, we understand each of those individually But very rarely do we see the capacity to rule and the capacity to be ultimately effective combined in one person. Yet in Jesus, as we're going to see, those two are married perfectly together. Let me explain. Because here are two ways we see the sovereignty of God in this text. First, Jesus doesn't judge our faces. Now what do I mean by this? Look at Mark 12, verses 14a. He says this, And they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And so actually, some of you might have it in the footnote of your Bible there. When he says you're not swayed by appearances, the Greek literally means you do not look at faces. You don't look at faces. And this is one thing, and we appreciate this blind picture of justice here. I, always, I read this, and I'm like, I'm so grateful my wife doesn't look at faces. Um, that's me making fun of myself. Um, you'll laugh later, I promise. Uh, and and so, so here we have this person who looks past these physical things and sees the concrete, true reality behind it. And so they come to Jesus, and they offer this question because, and they put it on a platter, and they serve it to him, and they said, Jesus... You answer all things objectively. For you do not look at the faces and the external, but you boldly speak in all occurrences the true will of God. And the irony of this is that in them saying that, Jesus saw the truth behind their flattery. You see, they came to Jesus with praise and this facade of genuine concern using flattery, flowery language, calling him teacher and giving him accolades and his ability to speak truth. But look at what Jesus says in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? You see, isn't this ironic? Because they're coming trying to trap Jesus and they're buttering him up saying, you can see the truth, Jesus. When Jesus can see the truth all the more than they ever expected. Because in this moment, Jesus isn't reading their mouths or simply hearing their words. He's looking at their heart. You see, we humans have this, uh, I say we humans like we're aliens, uh, but we people... (laughs) We normal people have, have this phrase we use and it says we take things at face value, right? You guys have heard that. Maybe you've said it. We, t- we take things at face value. That's because when all is said and done in our limited, finite existence, ultimately, we come to a point where we have to take things as they appear. 
We can do diligence. We can do research. We can do study. We can be inquisitive. But there comes a point where only based on the observations we're capable of making, we have to make a judgment. And because of that, you see humans through the lens of sin becoming prey to scams, extortion, exploitation, and shame by those who are willing to manipulate us with false faces to gain their advantage. Jesus will not be so manipulated. Jesus will not fall for the facades. He was not manipulated by the Herodians or the Pharisees, and he will not be manipulated by you. You see, the idea, the theology of the sovereignty of God means that nothing is hidden in his sight. You see, you can walk the walk of Christianity. You can walk the walk of morality. You can walk the walk of being a good person. You can talk the talk. You can fake sincerity. You can fake faith. You can do enough on the exterior, both unfortunately to fool others, but ultimately you can fool yourself. All the while, you will not fool Christ. Christ is sovereign and concrete in the perception of his reality, meaning Christ only sees that which is real, separating the chaff from the wheat. And there are people in here, and there have been people who come in here. One thing I've noticed over my eight years of being on staff with the church is that I'm never amazed at the amount of people who come in with all the fruits of belonging all the fruits of faith, all the words to say, all the prayers to pray, all the hands to raise. But ultimately, their heart is what proves them false. False motives and disingenuous passions. And one day, for each and every person in here, all of you will be laid bare before God and you can no longer hide behind what you were able to present online or on the experience and you will have to answer not for your face but for your heart. You see, the comfort for the Christian is that Christ knows us and he sees only himself. The terror for the hypocrite is that Christ knows them and he only sees deadness. Okay, that's the first thing. God know, Jesus, Jesus knows you. Jesus knows your heart right now, despite what you may think, despite the level of academic uh, resistance you put up to it. Jesus knows you. Secondly, God is due more than Caesar. Okay, looking at the sovereignty of God. First, Jesus doesn't look at your face. He looks at your heart. Secondly, God is due more than Caesar. And look at verses 15 through 17. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And, and a denarius is just a coin from the time. And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness, whose inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's, and render to God things that are God. And they marveled at him. And so, really, I mean, Jesus, on one hand, would make an awful politician, but on the other hand, we make a great politician because he's walking a tightrope here. Because these guys weren't just sitting around, they're like, what's a hard question? Let's ask him about taxes. These guys were sitting around and they brought forth this question because the answer to this question was very dangerous. 
Because Jesus at this time was being followed by a crowd of Jews, and these Jews were following, hoping, him that, he, hoping that he would be this Messiah who would ultimately liberate them from Roman rule, and Caesar was giving oppressive, unbearable taxes to the people in Jerusalem. And so if Jesus got up there and said, yeah, we should be paying taxes to Caesar, these Jews are like, that's not what you're supposed to say. And all of a sudden, these Jews are angry, and these Jews will want to kill Jesus. But at the same time, if Jesus stands in this Roman-controlled city and says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, now Jesus is an enemy of Rome, and now he is eligible to be executed or to be put into prison. You see, the argument Jesus makes is not that of taxation. The arguments Jesus makes is that of likeness. You see, he holds up a coin, and he says, Whose likeness is this and whose inscription is this? And so on a denarius in that time there, much like our coins or our dollar bills today, it had an inscription uh, or a portrait of Tiberius Caesar on it. It had his, his mug on it. And then below it, it had this inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And actually, while sidestepping one controversy, Jesus radically in ignites a new countercultural understanding of things. Because here on this coin, to the whole Roman Empire, Caesar is being promoted as the divine being. But Jesus, in his answer, shows that Caesar is not God. Caesars do what Caesar is due, but God is due something entirely different. The word that's used here when it says likeness is actually it. In Greek, it's icon. That's what it is. It's where we get this idea of an icon, an image. The reason it's not just translated as an icon, like you have icons on your desktop which represent something, is that there is a different weight to this word because rather than just presenting an appearance, it translated an ownership, it translated a belonging, it translated a different, fuller sense of the word which is better portrayed as likeness. But Jesus, when he uses this term here, he knows exactly what he's doing. Because in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which all these scribes and all these Jewish officials would know, this word is used very sparingly. But it's used very specifically, this word icon, in a very important place. And Jesus knows exactly the point he's making with it. In Genesis 1 verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Literally, let us make man in our icon. Do you see the games Jesus is playing here with these religious officials? It's just going straight over their heads here because in saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, he's saying to the Pharisees and Herodians, he's saying, my controversy, the controversy of Christ is not about where you render your taxes. The controversy of Christ is where do you render your heart? Because your heart is due to someone in the same way that coin is due to someone. You see, during this time, there was a group called the Jewish Zealots. And they were the ones who wanted to rebel against Rome. But they were also the ones who bought things. And use currency. And you see, whether they realized it or not, despite what their political views said, the moment they had one of those coins, it was due to Caesar. Why? 
because it was Caesar's coin. Your, your money in your pocket today is based off a similar value. It doesn't really belong to you. If you burn money, if you deface money, it's illegal because it's the government's money. That coin really was Caesar's property. And whether they realized it or not, it was due to him. And the same is true of your heart. Whether you realize it or not, you are made in the image and likeness of God. And in that, there's innate sense of belonging. That means that you will not, you are not meant to find autonomy and belonging outside of God. And yet that's what our culture does. We seek to identify with sexuality. We seek to identify with career. We seek to identify with sports teams or leisure activities or family or subsidiary relationships. But what Jesus is saying here is that your chief identity is not found in the world, but because you are the image and likeness of God, every man everywhere will only find their full purpose and their full identity in the hands of the one who crafted them. God himself. And this belonging isn't rocket science. It's just the natural ramifications of being made in the image of a sovereign and effective God. You see, this first question reshapes our existence on this earth. Why are we here? Because we are the image of God. We are due to God and we are to render our hearts to God. And your hearts will be judged on this earth according to the merit through which we choose to render our hearts to God or we choose to render our hearts to another? That's the first question. But the second question continues to reshape our existence on the earth, but it does so by focusing on the life after life on earth. We see the second question, verses 18 through 27. New group. So we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now the Sadducees come to him, who say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, more false flattery, right? They don't really think Jesus is a teacher. They want him to die. If he was a teacher, they'd listen to him. Moses wrote for us that if a man leaves his brother, or if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, a man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as her wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong, because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the living, or he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. So here we have another group of officials. And they're coming to Christ with a different angle and a different question, and Jesus frames their answer with the truth of resurrection glory. And you ever really thought about this question? What happens to you when you die? It sounds, che- it sounds like everybody's worst nightmares. You, get, you come to this church meeting, and the, the pastor, he's probably Baptist, because Baptists like to get made fun of a lot, and he bangs on a pulpit, and he's like, if you died today, would your soul end up in so-and-so, or so-and-so, or so-and-so? 
And it becomes this cheesy kind of stamp or something of, of, of fundamental evangelicalism. But that is a legitimate question. Whether you find your answer in religion of a deistic religion or in secularism or, or in an atheistic worldview, you have to wrestle and you have to provide an answer for what happens to you when you die. And for those of us who are in here, we probably, I mean, we're in here, you probably say something along the lines of, well, I'll go see Jesus when I die. I'll go to heaven and I'll be with Jesus. But that's about as far as our understanding goes. It's about as far as our hope goes. And even inside of that, typically going to Jesus just looks more like this disembodied spiritual state where we get wings and we sit on clouds and we play holy lawn darts in the sky, twiddling our thumbs like a giant divine portrait of Florida. Kind of like a far side comic strip. What does it mean to go to heaven to be with Jesus? And you see, there are two thoughts in Jewish religion during this time, two thoughts about what happens when you die. The first thought was that of the Pharisees, who we just saw prior to this. And they, um, they saw the Old Testament affirming a real bodily resurrection at the judgment day. One day at the end of God's plan, he will execute judgment on all mankind. And during that time, those who have died will come back to life and be judged either to everlasting life or to death in Hades. And for them, when all of a sudden there would be real live resurrection, the Sadducees, who are asking this question right now, who Mark actually told us, they don't believe in the resurrection. And they, looking at the same Old Testament scriptures, they said, when the body dies, the soul dies. And when the soul dies, and when the body dies, you die. That's the end. That's your existence. You've lived a good God-fearing life here. There's no future reward. There's no future punishment. It's simply you cease to exist. And so the Sadducees bring a story about resurrection hypotheticals to Jesus trying to trap him. And let me, this is a crazy story, so let me kind of unpack the cultural background behind this here. In ancient Near East cultures, there was very little protection for women and children outside of their family name. To be a widow, to be an orphan child without a father, without a name, left you out of protection. And so God, knowing this, and, and part of this is because, like right now, thinking of the idea of not having descendants is, is pretty menial to us. Why? Because there's 7 billion people alive right now on this earth. But that's about a tenth of all the people who have ever lived over all the years. We live in a population unrivaled before. Population was always something of survival, where now it's something of an inconvenience. And so what God would do is if there was a woman who didn't have a son to take that name and her husband died, it was that husband's brother, it he, he was his job to come and, and try to impregnate her with a son. And that son wouldn't belong to the brother, he'd belong to the deceased husband for the good of this wife and for the legacy of the family so that they may share in the inheritance of the promise. And so God did this, not because he's weird, but he did this with grace and with mercy to preserve and to love those who had lost their identity in the world. And actually, it was shameful to be a brother who refused to do that because it basically said to your deceased brother, I hope you die and I hope your family dies. 
And so knowing this backdrop, the, the, the Sadducees come to him and they try to trap Jesus by showing how silly this premise of resurrection life is. Because certainly, if this were the case, it would be confusing. And who wants to live in a life this confusing? It's improbable because of problems such as this. This is why the Sadducees are asking this question. They're trying to trap Jesus in this. But once again, this question isn't a problem for Jesus. And Jesus does two things with this. And I'm actually going to invert it um, from the order Jesus actually gave it in. Um, The first thing he does is he affirms life after death by pointing to Moses in the burning bush in verses 26 through 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read? And so here's the thing. Jesus is like straight out, openly destroying these guys through his word. Because twice he says, well, the reason you don't understand this is because you don't understand the scriptures. The Sadducees were like these scripture guys. These guys knew the scripture. They stu- this is like telling Michael Jordan he doesn't know how to score points or win championships. And so these guys, you could just see them getting red in their face as Jesus is talking about this. And he says, uh, have you not read? Have you not read? Of course they've read. They just don't understand. Have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You, you teachers of the law, you're quite wrong. You're quite mistaken. Now, why is this important? Why, what does this Moses story have to do with it? Because what's important is here we see Moses standing at a burning bush, right? All vacation Bible school or the Prince of Egypt. Or did, is, did anyone see the new Christian Bale movie or whatever it is? God's ex- Was there a burning bush scene in there? Yeah, okay. So, so culture is pretty familiar with this story. Good, they kept something in it. Um, culture is pretty familiar with this story. And what God says to affirm Moses, who's just freaked out. Why? Because there's a burning bush talking to him. Um, God says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. But here's the thing. Moses lived 600 years after the birth of Abraham. Abraham's dead. Jacob is dead. So what's really going on here? If Abraham was dead, how is God still his God? More importantly, if God had made a promise to Abraham and then he said he would bless him to make his descendants as numerous as the stars on the, in, in the sky and the sand on the seashore and that kings would come from him, how is it that Abraham died with one son? I mean, remember we talked about sovereignty. We talked about sovereignty as being in ultimate rule and being effective. How effective is it to make those promises and let the one who you made those promises to die with one son to his name and kind of a half-son running around in the wilderness? No kings, no seashore, no stars in the sky. Is God not effective? If there's no life after death, God's the best poker player the world's ever seen. He bluffed Abraham into moving his home, into trusting this bush on fire. But the fact that God makes promises to people who died before the fulfillment of those promises does not show that God is incapable. But it shows that the promises of God are often realized to people after death, in their life after death. And in so doing, it broadens the entire view of our life to know that the goodness of God is not only seen on this side of death, but the goodness of God is seen in our eternal existence. 
You see, God fulfills his promises to the living, even though they're dead, because he's a God of the living, not a God of the dead. God isn't gathering an army of corpses. God is gathering a follower base of real living people. You will have life after death. Movies and, and books, they try to capture this, this idea of the Holy Grail, which grants immortal, immortality, but we are all immortal. You will all live forever. It's just a matter of where you will live. There is life after death. And in the same way you'll have to answer for your heart, you'll have to answer as to where you'll spend that life. Secondly, Jesus points to the nature of the life after death. In Mark 12, 24 through 25, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus says two things here. One, he says you will rise from the dead. Clear as mud. You will rise from the dead. There's a real resurrection of the dead which is yet to come. And in that day, Jesus continues, he says, you will not be given in marriage for you will be like the angels. Now, Jesus, he, he uses phrases here like you will be resurrected. It's not this vague, mystical rising from the dead. You will bodily, and this is unfold throughout the rest of Scripture, you will bodily be resurrected from the dead. So when Jesus says you'll be like angels, is he contradicting that idea that you will have a resurrection body? No. What Jesus is saying, now, now pay attention here, because this is the good news of it. What Jesus is saying is that when we get to that new heaven and that new earth where we have resurrected bodies, we will not have a driving need to be married because like the angels are in this day, they are fully, entirely, and completely satisfied by the glory of God. There is no relational void in our resurrected life because we are captivated by the beauty of God. You see, the, the, the real paradox is, is not only will we not be married, but we will not be single. We will be completely relationally fulfilled and satisfied by the goodness of God. Now, I have a wife, and I was just gone from her for three days, and I missed her, and my heart ached for her, and I just wanted to be with her. If that becomes a secondary affection, to the glory of God, we're going to experience something wonderful. We're going to experience something of a completely different nature. And I want to come back to this. Okay, We're going to come back to this, this resurrected life in a bit. But there, there, there are three th or four things that Jesus is saying here. One, there's a life after death. Two, there will be bodily resurrection. Three, it will be a completely different nature of existence. That relational void is filled. It's different, but it's the same in many ways. But lastly, and this is the big thing here, the complications and hurts of this world will not carry into our resurrection life. One, one of the, the, the things I love to do at our church is membership interviews. People who are coming and applying to be members at church and you get to ask them questions about their life and about how Jesus has saved them and how he's shaping their life. And I remember sitting with one lovely saint at our church who I love and she, she told me her story and she's outlived three husbands and is still faithfully serving God and loving the church. 
And I sat there and my heart was just warmed by this. But at the same time, my heart broke for her. She watched three times the love of her life die. Why? Because in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. And with it came the minions of death and pain and evil and toil and hearts that would become still. I mean, these Pharisees are painting this hypothetical situation, but can you imagine the hurt of this woman seven times watching her hope of life die? Seven times not being able to conceive because of the curse of sin. But in the next life, those things will be no more. In the next life, in a complete and final, unique and wonderful way, all the complications of the sinful world will find resolution in the glorious plan of God. That existence and that perfect contentment that the angels experience before God right now, this coming life is going to be the same She's going to know those men. She's going to be able to relate to them. But it's going to be entirely different because she's not going to see them as men who have died and she's not going to be burdened by that hurt. And for the Christian, looking at this hope, this hope of a life where we're resurrected, where there's perfect relational satisfaction, where there is no more entrapment or entanglement of sin, sin and its consequences are of no issue to the God who's raised us from the dead, that view of that life shapes our existence of this life. And our actions in this life shape our affections for the next Briefly, here's the last point today, one which contains two more questions, but an entirely different tone. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. The final group, one of the scribes, came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, quoting the Old Testament, a very well-known passage, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus doesn't see the face. He doesn't see the face of the offerings or the sacrifices. He sees the seed of the affection of love towards God and towards these others. And when Jesus saw he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, for the last time until Jesus stood on trial, no one dared ask him another question. So here we see a scribe ask a question, and there's a distinct tone. He's asking out of the wisdom he's seen Jesus provide with great sincerity. And he asks him this question, what's the greatest commandment? Why? 
Why did he ask this? Because these stories of the, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees are recorded in Matthew and in Luke. Neither Matthew nor Luke include this story about the greatest commandment. Why? Why is Mark including this in here? Why is this relevant to Mark? Because here's the thing. This scribe, in seeing the wisdom of God, has seen Jesus' sovereign, intricate, applied control and interaction in the answer to the Pharisees. He has also seen the ultimate hope of resurrection glory in the life to come in the answer to the Sadducees. And the natural reaction of his is then, how do I live now? If this is my present reality, if that is my future hope, how then should I live? What is the greatest commandment in light of this? And Jesus tells him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe affirms Jesus' answer. And Jesus replies in in a great way where in his soul Jesus perceived he answered wisely. Yet, what did Jesus say? You are near to the kingdom of God. He wasn't there yet. It wasn't fully there. This is the best interaction Jesus had with any religious official, and yet it still found lacking. You see, this is the final point. The scribe saw the sovereignty of God in the now, the glory of God in the future, and the purpose of God in the present, yet he wasn't there. What's missing? What's missing is that none of those things matter without Jesus. And Jesus is going to answer that claim right now when Jesus offers the final question and Jesus gives the final word in verses 35 through 37. And Jesus taught in the temple and he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. You see, the scribes in the Old Testament all agreed that the Messiah would be the son of David, but in their mind, because that's how normal people would think, this meant the Messiah would be someone in the line of David, a son of David, a great-great-great-great-grandchild of David. And Jesus is. The book of Matthew opens up with that very real truth. But here's what Jesus does is he cites this wonderful messianic Psalm 110 where David says, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. And how the scribes saw that is the Lord, Yahweh, said to the Lord David, sit at my right hand. It's God exalting David as the wonderful scepter, the psalmist says, to rule the nations, to have the enemies placed at his feet. But what Jesus says is that David is not a participant in this psalm. David is a witness to this psalm. And if David's a witness to this psalm, if David is not the second Lord, that means there is a preexistent all-powerful Lord who will come and live as the mighty scepter of God whom God will put all the enemies at his feet. You see, the point tonight is the key to the kingdom. And what the scribe missed is that you could have love, you could have affection, You could have goodwill and great sincerity. But without Jesus, it means nothing. Without Jesus, he lacks 
everything. He knew to love God. He knew what God demanded. He knew how to serve God, but he didn't yet see the fullness of who God was. But Jesus points to Psalm 110 and says, that's me. I am the God in flesh. I am not only the son of David, I am the son of God. I am the pre-existent second person of the Trinity. And the reason why you cannot trap me in your answers is because I am God. And this is where we find application tonight. The kingdom of God is entered only through Christ. And Christ, for each and every one of you, changes the entire outlook of your life. He's not an addition to it. He's not a supplement to it. He's not something to put on your resume like you would put key club to look like you've been a good social servant. Jesus redefines everything about your life and is no longer a cursory item, but he becomes the substance of your whole existence. And we're going to look at that more next week. But just right here, here are two ways where Jesus clarifies the whole of your life. You see, you were created, as we saw, in the image of God, and sin smeared that, it defaced that. It made it so that you were unrecognizable to who you were. And because of that, we don't know what our image is, we don't know where our belonging is, and so we turn to false gods and prop up saviors in terms of jobs and careers and sex and money and aspirations. But look at what Christ does for our image. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 15. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that he is Jesus, and transferred us into the, or this he is God, and he has transferred us into the, into the kingdom of his beloved son, that's Jesus, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. He, Jesus, is the image, the icon of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You see, where we were once created, visibly, screaming, the wonderful belonging to God the Father, sin smudged that and tarnished it. But Jesus came not simply to stand in our place, but he came to stand as the image of who we really are. And so by coming into his belief and taking his sacrifice, we restore our image, we restore our belonging, we restore our whole purpose. And in doing that, we render everything back to God. He consumes the whole of our life, the seat of our affections, the desire of our hearts. And so how do you live? You render to God that which is his. Secondly, the doctrine of the resurrection is creepy and it's weird and it's awkward and it makes no sense outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, realistically, outside of science fiction, where do we get this idea that up from the grave, people will come back to life, not as spirits, not as ghosts, but as real tangible people. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. You see, we will rise because Christ was the first fruit. We will rise from the dead to a physical body because Christ rose from the dead in a physical body. Today, I saw on the news that ISIS is going around in Iraq and they've already closed down the churches, church bells that have run vibrantly each Easter for 1,500 years have been silent because of enemies of the gospel. And today they've gone to centuries-old graveyards of faithful saints, and they have began to deface graves. But the joke's on them. Deface the graves, burn the bones, we will have resurrection life because Jesus had resurrection life. So let the swords swing, let the critics come, because Christ will win in the end. And those who have been raised with Christ will rise again to new life to proclaim the excellencies of him who have brought them from death to life, not in only a spiritual way, but in a real way, to a new reality, to an enduring hope. So my question to you then is, does that hope shape this life? And does this life point to that hope? Because in those things, you find the true worth of life this side of the cross. In those things, we find the courage to go. We find the message to say, because what can separate us from the love of God if not death itself? When death fell, our last enemy fell. And when Christ was raised, our greatest hope was assured. Disciples of Christ the doctrine of Christ's sovereignty and the promise of resurrection glory is not a lounge chair with which we kick back our feet and wait out the remainder of our years. It is a cry to arms and a call to discipleship to go forth equipped with the message of the gospel and the hope of new life to an otherwise dying world to call out at the risk of shame and death and persecution those who are lost because Jesus is the Son of God. Go with that message. You in here who need that, believe that message. And preach it until the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have prevented us from being too escapist in this world, but also too triumphant about what's coming in the next. But you, because of the doctrine of the present reality and the future hope, because of your sovereignty and the glory of the resurrection, have called us to a perfect balance of faithful, deliberate, steadfast, long-standing, enduring, toilsome, wonderfully beautiful labor. And so, Lord, we ask tonight, because you are the God who looks not at the face, but looks at the heart, to look on us with kindness. And through the person of Christ, impress on us not the image the world wishes, wishes for us to bear, but to impress on us the perfect image of God, the likeness of God, the icon of likeness and belonging which we were created with, and restore us again to the creation for which we were created. We pray this in your name. Amen.